Thank you, Trevor, and good morning. Um, as Trevor said, my name is Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central. Excited to be with you on this fourth Sunday of Advent. The waiting is almost over. Christmas is almost here. And this morning we're continuing in our Advent sermon series entitled, Behold the Coming King. And today we will be finally reaching the crescendo of the Christmas story, the celebration of Christ's birth. And so I invite you to stand, if you're able, as we read perhaps the most famous passage in all of Scripture. Before we read, I'm going to ask you if you're able and willing to kind of make a little room to spread out a little. Uh, we're going to get the blood flowing. I, I'm not joking. We're going to start with a little jogging in place. Okay, so we're going to get it right here. Here we go. Nice. And now we're going to take it up. One, two, one, two, one. There we go. All right. We're ready. All right. Luke 2. Here we go. This is God's word. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find him, find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. This is God's word. I, the prophet Isaiah says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we believe that your word is true. Would you speak to us now through your word? Would you enable us to encounter you this morning, the living God, and through being with you, would we be transformed? Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> Some of you may not know this about me, but I graduated from the University of Alabama. And I say that with much pride. But it wasn't always like that. When I was in school, things were rough. Education was fine, but the football was really bad. And in Tuscaloosa, football is all that matters. But shortly after I graduated from the university, something glorious happened. St. Nick came to town. Not that St. Nick, no, Nick Saban came to town. 
And ever since, I've been quite proud to call myself an alum of such a glorious institution. I'll never forget 2010, I was actually in the stadium for St. Nick's first national championship. It was epic. I confess that I relived the glory of that day quite often. And then the strangest thing happened. We won another national championship. And then another and another six national champ. You know, you need two hands to count, which is how we count in Alabama, with our hands. But if I'm honest, the first was the best for me. The second was pretty awesome. But by the time we got to the sixth, it was kind of old hat. The thrill of winning a natty just wasn't there like it used to be. I'm actually kind of glad we're taking the year off so that hopefully I can regain some excitement for when we win one next year. But Christmas is kind of like an Alabama national championship, isn't it? The first one that you can remember, epic. The next few are pretty awesome too, but the problem with Christmas is it's just like Nick Saban in the playoffs. It just keeps coming back over and over again. Before you know it, Christmas becomes old hat and it loses its magic and its luster. And the problem with that is that as Christians, we know that Christmas is supposed to be a really big deal. It's supposed to be something that moves us, that inspires us. But many of us, if we're honest, instead of saying, hallelujah, Christmas is here, we're saying, here we go again. Which brings us to the question of the day. How do we make something that is so familiar come alive to us once again? And the good news is that hidden inside this familiar text are some instructions on how to respond to this familiar story? How do we respond so that we find ourselves not just going through the Christmas motions again, but so that Christmas will land in our hearts? And the response that is presented to us here in Luke 2 is modeled for us by the shepherds and by Mary. And the response is to fear not, to behold, and to ponder and treasure. Fear not, behold, and ponder and treasure. And this morning, we're going to look at these three responses one at a time, starting with fear not. I think we can all agree that Christmas is a lot of things. It's fun. It's merry and bright. It's busy. It's stressful at times. It can be rather lonely even. But for most of us, scary is not on the top 10 list of emotions that Christmas cultivates. But for the shepherds, fear was number one. But what was it about Christmas that brought so much fear into these shepherds' lives? Look again at verse 9. It says, an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And that's pretty scary in and of itself. I'm not sure where we got this idea that angels are sweet and cuddly and gentle. The Bible describes angels as God's warriors sent to do battle on his behalf. Angels are not for cuddling with. But that's not the main reason why the shepherds were afraid. If you keep reading, it says that the glory of the Lord shone around them, meaning that not only 
as God sent his messenger, but God has surrounded his messenger with his own glory, meaning that, that God himself is present here in this random field with these random shepherds. And it says that the shepherds were filled with fear. The King James says they were sore afraid. They were shaking in their boots. Do you know that every single time in the Bible when God appears in creation, the Bible says that there is always sheer terror. The response is never, hey God, so glad that you're here, but, but rather holy crap. Literally, holy crap. And for the record, we don't say holy crap in my house, but as a biblical scholar, I know that that's what everyone says when God appears. Except for this one time. There's one place in the Bible when God appears in glory and the people are not afraid. And that's in the garden, the Garden of Eden, before the fall, before Adam and Eve sinned. Genesis 1, God shows up in creation and Adam and Eve are totally cool with it. In that place and at that time, there was no fear in God's presence, which means, and church, this is important, it's because of sin that fear exists when God shows up. It's because of sin, which encompasses all the ways that we have rebelled against God, because of that sin, being in God's presence produces guilt and shame. Because when we're, in, when we're in God's presence, we're made aware of his holiness. And, and the, the dichotomy becomes plain. Just like if I were on the basketball court with LeBron James, his talent would make my lack of talent be obvious. It would expose how bad I am. In the same way, God's holiness inevitably exposes our not holiness, our sinfulness. And then the fear that arises comes out of us not knowing how God is going to respond to our sinfulness. That's what the shepherds were feeling here in, in Luke 2. When God revealed himself to them because of their sin, they knew that they were in a place they should not be. They were not welcome or worthy to be in God's presence. And so they were terrified. Terrified that God might have finally come to deal with their sinfulness once and for all, to make them pay. Church, Christmas is all about God showing up, isn't it? It's the story of God showing up in creation, of God making his presence known, of making the invisible visible, breaking into our world. But is that really a good thing? I wonder how many of us resonate with that same fear that the shepherds had. The fear that if God shows up in my life, is that a good thing? We're convinced maybe that if God shows up, he's going to make you pay. I imagine if that's where you're at, then Christmas might be really hard for you. Because who wants to draw near to a God who's disappointed or, or mad at you? What's interesting about our text is that God was clearly aware of this fear that the shepherds had and, and, and that we all have. And in response, he has his angels speak right to the fear. Look again at, at verse 11. There's this little throwaway phrase that I think probably meant the world to the shepherds. The angel says, for unto you. For unto you. 
I have to imagine at this moment that each and every shepherd had this kind of looking over your shoulder to the side. Who, who, me? Who, me, God? I mean, the shepherds, they were the lowliest of the lowly. They had a reputation for being unscrupulous and untrustworthy, so much so they weren't even allowed to testify in the courtroom of the day. These were the last people who would ever be the first to be given this really important information. And of all people to be the first ones to hear the arrival of the king, God chose them. And, and I believe it's in God's choosing of, of these shepherds, these riffraffs, that we see the true heart of God. And in turn, we can take heart. You can take heart knowing that no matter how lowly, how unworthy you might feel, this baby has come unto you, unto you as well. Do you know that if a, a baby lamb loses its mother say, during childbirth, most often that little lamb has to be put to death. And the reason why is that the other ewes won't accept a child that is not their own. The, the, the mom will literally push this other baby away and refuse the little lamb access to, to the milk. But over time, shepherds discovered this fascinating way to get around this. It's called grafting. And it only works when there is a ewe that, that has lost its own child. And what the shepherd will do is, is, is he will take the fleece from that little lamb that passed away and place that fleece on top of the orphan lamb. And the little orphan lamb wears this fleece of, of the dead lamb like a coat. If you visit uh, some places where, like Scotland, where you, you actually see the shepherds out in the field, you might actually see this, a, a little lamb bouncing around wearing a wool coat. <laughs> and what happens is if the mother smells the fleece and, and she recognizes the scent, she believes that, that little orphan lamb is her own. And so she will inadvertently adopt the, the orphan and make that lamb her own child. The reason we fear not is because that is exactly what happened 2,000 years ago at Christmas. Christ came to die. Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. In his dying, he gave us his coat his righteousness. And, and when we by faith put that coat on, God embraces us. God adopts us. He brings us home and he treats us as his own. Second Corinthians 5, God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Brothers and sisters, that coat was offered unto the shepherds and it is offered unto you and to me. That's the Christmas story. Fearful orphans through the Christ child, chosen by God, adopted and brought home. Now I realize for many of us we hear that and maybe we, we, we know it's true, but it just doesn't land like it used to, which brings us to our second response. Look at verse 10. It says, The angel said to them, these fearful shepherds, Fear not, for behold. 
What the angel says is that the way that this truth becomes real, the way that, as Daniel mentioned last week, it moves from our head into our hearts is, is through beholding. What does it mean to behold? The Greek word that's translated here is the word edu, and it means to perceive with all of our senses, to, to take it all in, if you will. It's a thoughtful, full-bodied seeing. Last year, my grandmother passed away at the ripe old age of 82. And in her passing, she handed down to me this beautiful piece of art. It's a picture of a little village tucked away in some remote European countryside. And this painting had hung on the wall at her house for my entire life. I'd seen it, passed by it countless times as a little boy, as a teenager, as a, as a grown man. It was very familiar to me. And the painting now hangs on the wall in my office here at the church. And, and the chair that I most often sit in faces this painting. And what's fascinating is that although this painting was so familiar, now that it sits right in front of me all the time, I see it in a whole new light. Before I had just seen the painting, but now I can honestly say that I have beheld this painting. I've, I've stared at it for long periods of time and observed little details that I'd never seen before, imagining what it might be like to live in this little village, pondering what inspired the artist to paint this scene. I saw that painting hundreds of times before I ever beheld it. Not until I gave it some space and time, not until I engaged it with all my senses, did it really come to life. What might it look like for you and me to not see, but rather behold the Christmas story on this final week of Advent? Now, I get it. The Christmas season is so busy. <laughs> And I can feel the anxiety beginning to well up in the room. Pastor's trying to put another thing on my to-do list to get done before Christmas. And yet I think this invitation is actually the exact opposite. Beholding is not another thing to do, but rather it's an invitation to thoughtfully not do. <laughs> to carve out some time and space to be still, to sit in it to sit in God's word, to sit in some Christmas songs, to sit around the dinner table with this story on our tongues, to sit in it long enough to behold, to behold something new, something fresh, something beautiful. But it doesn't happen by chance. Christmas in this country has become such a tornado. And it, if you simply engage it, Passively, it will just suck you up into its vortex and you will blink and it'll be over. And the tornado will spit you out with a shrunken wallet and an enlarged waistline. And, and that's about all you get. Amen? But the point of Advent is to avoid that. The season of Advent is the church's way of creating space to behold. It starts early, and it lasts a while, and that's intentional. Don't get me wrong. I resonate with those of you who are frustrated by how early 
places like Target and Walmart start putting out their Christmas things. And, and we should be frustrated by that because that's their motivation is to, to find an early entry into your wallet. But the reason that Advent starts early is because the church is looking for an early entry into your heart. We need time and space in order to not see but truly behold the majesty of Christmas. To engage the story with all of our senses and to see for what it truly is. For some of you here this morning, the invitation is to behold for the very first time. You've heard this story, I'm sure, many times before, and it's a sweet story, but never has it really landed in your heart. My invitation is to sit in it again and to ask those hard questions. Is it, is it really true? Did God really send his son down to earth to rescue me? And if so, what does it look like for me to receive him as my savior? If that's you, I hope and pray that you will let one of us, me or someone else, walk with you in that process. We'd love to walk with you as you seek to behold in a whole new way. For others, the invitation is to behold again, to sit in the Christmas story, but this time with some anticipation and expectation, hoping and maybe even expecting to see something extraordinary. Which brings us to our third and, and final response. Look again with me at the end of our text. Here Luke gives us two responses that I think he intends to juxtapose. We see the response of the crowd and the response of Mary. It says, verse 18, that the crowd wondered at, at what the shepherds had told them. The, the Greek word here means to look favorably, to, to admire. It's not the kind of wonder that's full of doubt. It, it, meaning that they, they were likely believing what they heard. It sounds like a pretty good response, right? But look now at Mary, verse 19. It says that instead of wonder, she treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. What does that mean? This word ponder has to do with the, the cognitive understanding. It is to engage the mind. The, the word literally means to put in context, to connect. To ponder is to ask the question, how does this fit in with everything else I know? To ponder is to, to connect this story to how I'm living my life. It's, it's not just to say, oh yeah, I know that, but instead to ask the question, so what? If this is true, then how does it change my life? Christ Central Church, may you, like Mary, ponder the Christmas story this week. Pondering if it's really true, what does it matter? How does it change me? But Mary doesn't just ponder. The text also says she treasured up all these things. This, this is the emotional side. This is the engaging of the heart. The word treasure here means to preserve or, or to protect, to, to keep something alive. Like you might keep the fire alive by feeding it or keep a baby alive by nourishing and protecting it. It's to relish and to savor. Mary doesn't just ponder 
and know the Christmas story cognitively. She, she fans the flame in her heart. She, she takes it in and she presses it down into her soul until it comes alive, until it burns inside of her. How easy it is to simply be like the crowd, to, to hear the story, to, to believe it on some level and to marvel but not treasure it in our hearts. To not take it all the way in in a way that transforms us and changes us from the inside out. It's my charge for you today is to behold. And as the image becomes clear, may you like Mary engage your head and your heart. May you ponder and treasure all these glorious things in your heart. We'll close with a story on April 12, 1961. The Soviet Union beat out the United States and successfully put the first man in space. And his name was Yuri Gagarin. Uh, he completed one orbit of planet Earth. You guys learned this back in elementary school. And on returning, he famously commented, I went up in space and there was no God to be seen. I recently learned that uh, British author C.S. Lewis wrote an article, article in response to Gagarin's comments entitled The Seeing Eye. And in this article, Lewis comments that there is a, if there is a God who created us, you could not find him by going up into space because you would not relate to a creator God the way a person on the second floor of an apartment relates to the person on the first floor. And what he's saying is that, you know, how the way the person on the first floor relates to the person on the second floor is in order to meet that person, they just go up. They take the elevator, they go up the stairs. That was Gagarin's argument that, that I went up to the second floor, up to heaven, if you will, and nobody was home. But Lewis argues that when it comes to God, that can't be how it could work. Because if God is the creator of this world and the creator of us, the only way that we can relate to him is the way that Hamlet relates to Shakespeare. Hamlet being a character in one of Shakespeare's plays. You see, because the only way that Hamlet can ever come to know about Shakespeare is if Shakespeare writes some information about himself into the play. In the same manner, the only way that humanity can know about God is if God writes himself into this story, into our story. Now, there's a fascinating picture of this idea lived out by one of C.S. Lewis's dear friends, Dorothy Sayers. She and Lewis were writing buddies. Sayers was the first woman graduate from Oxford University, and her niche was detective stories. And her most famous stories were about a detective named Lord Peter Whimsey. What's interesting about this book series is that halfway through the series, Dorothy decided to write a, a woman into her story named Harriet Vane. And get this, Harriet Vane just so happened to be the first woman graduate from Oxford University and was a prolific writer of mystery fiction. And in the story, Harriet and Peter fall in love. They get married and they go on to solve mysteries together and they live happily ever after. I think you know where I'm going with this, but what some who are close to Sayers believe is that Dorothy looked at this fictional world that she had created and looked at this man that she had created, and Dorothy fell in love with that world and more acutely with this man. And motivated by that love, she wrote herself 
into the story. Brothers and sisters, the glory of Christmas is that motivated by an immeasurable and immovable love, God wrote himself into our story. He revealed himself to us in Christ so that we might know him and love him and live with him forever and ever and ever. Amen? So this Christmas, fear not, but behold the Christmas miracle. And motivated by love, ponder that God came to your rescue. And like Mary, may we ponder and treasure it all up in our heart. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this amazing gift. The gift of your son, Jesus who has come to our rescue. And we've heard it before and we'll hear it again, but God, I pray that you would help this story that is so familiar come alive to us once again. Give us space and time to behold, to engage with all our senses. God, give us the courage to ponder and meditate on what it means to us if it really is true how does it change things and as we behold and as we ponder would we take those truths and press them down deep into our hearts would we treasure them up like Mary knowing that this love is far beyond all that we could ever imagine your love for us God we thank you we praise you we pray these things in Jesus name amen